All right, good morning, guys. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor here, and um, I want to welcome you this morning. And we're going to be starting a new sermon series through the book of Acts, launching that this morning. But before we jump in, I want to take a moment, um, and I want to pray for the, uh, the families of Roseburg, Oregon. Uh, I'm sure many of you have heard of the events that took place there this week. Um, nine people ranging in age from 18 to 67, were killed when uh, an angry young man entered a class he was enrolled in at uh, Umpqua Community College. But instead of taking notes or asking questions, um, he started shooting people. And then when the police showed up, he shot himself. Um, Roseburg is a small town uh, in southern Oregon, a little smaller than Edwardsville, but I think the impact in that community would be very similar to what it would be here. Um, I can only imagine the wound that's been left in that community of sorrow and confusion and fear as they are processing um, the loss and the devastation that has happened there. There's going to be many people this morning gathered. Um, in churches throughout that community, um, seeking God, and in the process, asking hard questions and looking to make sense of a senseless situation. So um, I thought it'd be appropriate for us this morning to remember them and to lift that community up and to pray for them. So why don't you guys pray with me? Father, I thank you that in our times of suffering, um, we know you are present and that we can um, ask for special grace. And so we do intercede on behalf of this community. Lord, that um, your spirit would be moving um, in the relationships, through the neighborhoods, through the churches, um, in the conversations that will be taking place this morning and in the coming weeks there. Pray, Lord, specifically for the families of those that are dealing with loss, those that have lost brothers or sisters, sons or daughters, fathers or mothers. And um, I just ask, Lord, that you would somehow um, bring life out of death. You're the one that makes sense of the senseless. You're, you're the, the one who can speak something into existence when it didn't even exist before. And so we come to you knowing, Lord, that you're powerful and good. And ask, Lord, that you will be with this community and bless them in ways that uh, we can't understand. Lord, they need your presence. So we ask for it. We pray for a richness of your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys. Um, we're going to the book of Acts. So grab your Bibles. And open up to Acts. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's fine. Go ahead and grab one off the floor around you. We have them distributed throughout the room. You can go ahead and grab one off the floor. Uh, if you're using one of our Bibles, um, we're going to page 907. 907. If you don't own a Bible, you don't have one that you can read, go feel free to take that one as our gift to you. We would love to uh, equip you to open up the Bible over the course of the week and to dig in more and read more. Um, that would be our honor to, um, to bless you in that way. 
We're only going to be looking at the first three verses of chapter 1 this morning. So we're going to Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up and he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. The word of the Lord. All right, as I was preparing for this sermon series um, this week, I, um, my attention just kept coming back to the tragedy in Oregon, honestly. Um, I spent quite a bit of time just reading um, the accounts and paying attention to the news. And, and I read about the families, and I read through their statements to the press, and uh, it was really heart-wrenching. One, one statement grabbed me. It was a mother um, talking about her son, and she said, this whole thing just doesn't make sense. This isn't the way life is supposed to be. What's interesting is I think we hear thoughts like that after a lot of tragedies, right? This doesn't make sense. This isn't the way life is supposed to be. It doesn't matter whether it's a landslide in South America or a seemingly endless war in Syria that is killing and displacing countless numbers of people or a young man who decides that the only meaning his life can really have is to take the lives of others. Something will happen, and someone will end up saying, it doesn't make sense. This isn't the way life is supposed to be. And we all nod our heads, and we all agree, because there's something intrinsically true. We know this is not the way life is supposed to be. But it is the way life is, isn't it? Have you ever known a time when you weren't hearing about or experiencing tragedy? Have you ever had an extended period of time that was completely free from, from pain, a horrible injustice, or, or the difficulties that come with life? So where do we get this idea that somehow life is supposed to be different than it is? You know? This is, this is life. I mean, as, as much as I hate to say it, what happened in Oregon this week is not isolated. It, and, and honestly, most of us probably weren't even shocked when we heard about it. It happens too often. In our country, it's a regular occurrence. When we hear about things happening around the world, about people dying, when people suffering, it pulls on our heartstrings. But honestly, most of us are starting to go numb. With so much suffering in the world, where do we get the idea that life is supposed to be any different? Where do we get the idea that this is not the way it's supposed to be? And with so much suffering in the world, how can we justify believing in a good and powerful God? If he were powerful, wouldn't he stop the pain? If he were good, wouldn't he want to? These are the hard questions, and our study of the book of Acts is going to help us make sense of what seems to be senseless. And I hope um, really give us 
a real and vibrant hope about what God is doing, not only in the world, but in our lives. Um, because the reality is God is moving. That's kind of the message of the book of Acts. God is moving to redeem and restore. And God's movement makes sense of the chaos of our lives. And so, so that's kind of what we're going to dig into this morning, right? So let's take a look again at our verses, because I want to remind us of, of where we're starting, right? At the, the outset uh, of the book of Acts, um, we begin with, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Um, what is all this about a first book, and who is Theophilus? Uh, well, the first book he's referring to is actually the Gospel of Luke. There are four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when we talk about the Gospels, we're talking about these historical accounts of the life of Jesus. Um, these four apostles uh, wrote down um, unique and different accounts of the life of Jesus. They are histories. Some of them begin with Jesus' birth. Some of them begin with his public ministry, but they all end in the same place after his death, burial, and resurrection. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he then followed it up with what we now know as Acts. It, it picks up where the Gospels leave off. After the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, what happened next? Right? What happened in the early church? How, how, did, how, did, how did the followers of Jesus go from 12 unorganized, um, bumbling guys um, to, to hundreds of thousands of Christ followers over the course of the next couple hundred years. How, how did we uh, witness the explosion of the early church, and what was the engine that drove it? Um, so Luke was writing to unpack the history of the early church, or, or, or better, to account for it. He was a physician. We find that out in Scripture, Luke, and, and, and he was a historian. He was very careful, very intelligent, and what he wanted to do is he, he realized that, that it, he was um, living in a critical transition of human history. And so he took it upon himself to gather information, very much like a modern historian. He, he was collecting sources, and he saw it as, as a divine duty, in a sense, to write down an accurate portrayal or account of what happened so that future people who would want um, evidence and information would have it. Now, he addresses this account, this, this book of history, to Theophilus. Theophilus is a name that literally means lover of God. Now, it may have been an actual guy, Theophilus. He, he, in, in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, he, he says, look, I'm writing to you, Theophilus, so that you can have an account of the life of Jesus so that you will know that your faith is trustworthy and based on evidence. So Luke's purpose is very clear. What he's saying is, I'm going to be a historian who accounts what's going on so that you can understand all the proofs and all the, the basis of of this faith, and he's doing it for Theophilus. Now, Theophilus may have been an actual person. It was a fairly common name during that period of time, um, but it may not have been. I mean, Luke may have simply been saying, look, I'm writing it for all lovers of God. I'm writing these accounts for anyone who would come after, who, who loves God, but wants to know more information, wants to dig in and understand who God is and what he was doing. So, so here's the thing, you guys, this is where I want you to, I want you to catch, is, is in these first few verses, what Luke is saying is this isn't the beginning of the story, <laughs> right? You're sitting down to read the book of Acts. This isn't the beginning of the story. There's a lot of context that came before this, and you need to understand it. 
right? It's not good enough to start here. This is, this is um, a continuing story. And you need to really understand what happened before if you're going to understand what happens here. And so this morning, in our first message in the series, what I want to do is help fill out that context. I want to go back, okay? I want to go back, and I want to make sure that we understand the context of the book of Acts, right? What are we dealing with when we look at this history? So we're going to go back, and we're not just going to go back um, to the Gospel of Luke, right? We're not just going to go back to the life of Christ, um, we're going to go all the way back. Okay. Uh, like all the way. Okay. So flip over to Genesis one. I, I mean, all the way back. Okay. In our Bibles, that's page one. Okay. Shouldn't be hard to find. So we're going all the way back to Genesis chapter one, because that's really where the story starts. And you'll understand why as we move forward. If you're like, holy cow, really? Yes. Um, now, don't worry, I'm not going to teach everything between Genesis 1 and, and the beginning of Acts, but I do want to hit some highlights so that we have a context in which to understand, really, that the Bible is one big story, right? The Bible is not a collection of loose sayings, of wise information, of random uh, um, accounts. It is, in fact, a single story that moves through a single storyline. In fact, you guys, I'm going to just throw it out there. The Bible is unique among all of the world's books. Okay. It was written in three different languages. It was written over the course of about 2000 years, 66 different books, about 40 different authors. And it tells a single story. I mean, I don't know how to explain that in any other way than to say that God was the project manager for that book. Right? I mean, that's incredible. It tells a single story and that single story can be summed up into the six acts of human history. And, 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 I, and I put it on the screen as a series of symbols. I call this napkin theology. And the reason we do this is because if you were in a conversation in a coffee shop and you wanted to explain it to somebody, we want it to be simple enough and memorable enough that you could sit down and scratch it on a napkin, okay, and explain. This is the story of human history. This is the single plot line of all of scripture. This is what the Bible's all about. Okay, And so I want to give us the context of this story so we understand where we stand in it. Okay, So let's talk about Act 1. That's where we're at in Genesis chapter 1, because Act 1 starts in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, what we find is that creation takes place over six days, right? God begins by creating. In Acts 1, we have the account. On day 1, God made these things. He looked and he saw and he said it is good. On day 2, he created these things. He looked and he saw and he declared it is good. Now, I don't know where you are in your understanding of biblical history or um, what things are going on as far as your struggle with, with how biblical history ties in with science, but, but I'm going to encourage you this morning, don't get hung up on the whole creation evolution stuff. Not right now. Okay, there are things to talk about there, and I'm happy to unpack them. And if you ever wanted to sit down, we'd be more than happy to, to walk through what we believe and why we believe it. But, but here's the thing. This morning, let's let the text give us a glimpse into the original human condition. Right? Let's let the text speak to us about why we're here um, and really the original intention of, um, of, the, of, of the human condition. So if you have questions about evolution, stuff like that, we'd be more than happy to address those things. But this morning, let's just, let's just sit in the text. All right, so in Genesis 1, we see six days of creation. And, uh, and then when we get to day six, something unique happens, right? So take a look at verses 26 and 27. 
in Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. That's God, by the way, speaking. Um, the plural there, of course, and we would understand that to mean God in a sense, and the, Trini- Unitarian, the, the, the unity of the Trinity. Uh, one God made up of, of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So when we get to day six, the final day of creation, God creates humanity. He creates um, mankind in his image, male and female, right? Um, A triune God, right? Three in one, ultimately creating man and woman to image God in his image, right? Which um, is, is profound in that sense that we need one another in order to fully experience how we were created in the image of God. We, we see here our innate desire for relationship. We see here our need for one another, our, 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 our um, need for mutual dependence, for love, for rich human experience, for friendship. All of that is innate to our creation, the sense that we are created in the image of God, a God, a God of, who, a God of relationship, right? When we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one, what we see is eternal community, right? A God of relationship, a God of love, not abstractly, but in practice, right? The Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Spirit, and the Spirit loves the Father. There's a, a dance of love and relationship and joy. Humanity was created to be relational, to operate in that. And in verse 31 of chapter 1, as God looks at what he created, he says this, And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning on the sixth day. So when he gets to um, the end of the day, he doesn't just say it is good like he did every other day. He says, behold, it is very good the chief culminating creative act of creating um, men and women in the image of God wraps up his creative effort. And what we see here is when God says it is very good, that is not just him saying, man, I did a good job, right? Maybe there's a little of that, right? Him looking at his great artist, looking at his art, saying, I like that, right? Uh, But it's more than that. It's God saying from a theological perspective, it is very good. Theologians call this the age of shalom. Shalom is a Hebrew word that means peace, but it means a whole lot more than simply a lack of conflict, right? When we talk about shalom, this age of shalom, what we're talking about is is way more than lack of conflict. We're talking about the flourishing of life. We're talking about everything operating in balance. We are talking about harmony and strength, and joy. During this period of time, the relationships of the created order work together to create a glorious hum. Each part of creation made its own note, but each of those notes worked in perfect harmony with the other notes of creation. 
right? With mankind, ultimately, is the steward of that created order, right? When God created um, Adam and Eve, mankind, everything was placed under them for care and protection. They were, they were set as stewards over the created order, right? So you are the chief of creation because you were created in my image, and, and basically they were entrusted with creation. Now care for it, right? Develop it, explore it, be creative like I am creative, be protective like I am protective. Image me in your humanity. And all of creation work together. Since they were unique in being created in the image of God, they exercised dominion and stewardship over everything else. This is a unique and, and powerful image of how things are supposed to be. Now, let me ask you something. If I were to ask you to tune a uh, 50-piece orchestra so that they all played the same exact note, how would you do it? Would you start with one piece and tune that piece and then use that piece to tune the next one and then that one to tune the next one and that one? You know what would happen if you did that? Ah, it wouldn't sound very good. <laughs> because there'd be a variance, right? From point A to point B and then from point B to point C, that variance would in fact be, be increased, right? And the more, for the farther you got out, the more disharmony you would have. And when all those pieces came to play together, um, you wouldn't have a harmony. You would have a mess, right? The only way to have all of those pieces tuned is to tune them with the same tuning fork. Because that one note brings harmony, right? When you have a single tuning fork by which everything is tuned, you end up with everything in harmony. So you end up with harmony from the diversity. And that's what happened in creation. Everything was tuned to a single note, and that note was the glory of God. Everything was tuned to the glory of God because God was the center. He was the creator, and he was the glory. And everything existed to the praise of his glory, and everything existed in the overflow of his good. Everything existed in harmony with God and with every other part of creation. Not competing for glory, not competing for advancement, not competing and, and fighting and dividing, but resting in that place in which they were created. Now, that season didn't last very long. In fact, it ends in, in Genesis chapter 3. So go ahead and flip over there. That's page 2. It's not a very far flip. Okay. Um, let's take a look at verses 1 through 7 in uh, Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. All right. Um, yes, I know there's a talking snake in this story, Okay. Uh, yes, um, but let's uh, let that go for a moment, okay? Uh, let the story 
inform us about what happened to our original condition. Let the story inform us about what happened to that flourishing of shalom. Adam and Eve in this story are tempted by an outside source. Right? In this case, it takes the form of a, of a serpent. Theologically, we find out later d- that's developed um, that it is, in fact, an angelic force, an, an angel that had rebelled against God, um, which we also know as demons, uh, a demonic source ultimately seeking to rob God of his glory by tempting them uh, out of relationship with God. And so they're tempted to eat the tree that God told them not to eat from. Right? So they look at the tree, and it looks like it's good to eat, and, and it looks like it's, it's nice to have. And, and ultimately, they're like, well, what are we going to lose? We're going to end up with more than we have now. We'll actually end up with our own knowledge of good and evil. In other words, we'll no longer have to depend on God to give us that wisdom. We'll be able to stand on our own, right? We'll have our own knowledge of good and evil. We'll be able to define for ourselves what is right and what is wrong, what is good, what is bad, what is healthy, and what is deadly, Right? This wisdom looks attractive. You know what happened here? They took the tuning fork away from God. They said, we're not going to tune ourselves to you anymore. You, your glory will no longer be what sets the central note of creation. We won't submit ourselves to you as the conductor of life. We will become the conductors of our own lives. And as a result, they tuned themselves by themselves. And God's will was no longer the measure of what was good and beautiful and glorious and life-giving. Instead, it was their personal preference. And God was no longer the center. They said, we will tune ourselves. And the glorious hum of creation was immediately plunged into a cacophony of competing notes. The glorious hum of creation was suddenly just a mess of, of untuned notes. The experience of shalom was lost as that central figure, that central note, that controlling force was rebelled against and lost in creation. Because Adam and Eve, uh, the first of humanity, were given the stewardship of all creation. When they rebelled against God, they plunged all of creation into their rebellion. Now, I don't have time to take you this morning through all of Genesis 3. It's an incredibly insightful chapter into the human condition, but I will summarize it. What we see in Genesis chapter 3 is the, uh, uh, the consequences of that choice, which result in basically the loss of shalom in every key relationship, the loss of flourishing and balance and health and strength in every fundamental relationship because they've lost their tune with the glory of God. They've lost their tune with every relationship. And that begins with their relationship with themselves. And we read that part, right? Right off the bat, after they ate of the fruit, they saw that they were naked. Okay, that's not a condemnation of the human body. That's not some idea that somehow there's, there's something wrong with physical nakedness. What it meant was for the first time in the human experience, they understood what shame was. For the first time in human experience, they felt the urge to hide. They had an innate sense, I don't measure up. There's something wrong with me, right? In that moment was born the experience of shame and guilt. In that moment was born our desire to hide 
right? In that moment was born the false self that all of us live with. You know what I'm talking about? The false self is the one you want to believe yourself to be. The false self is the one that you push out on Facebook and social media. The false self is the one that you continually want other people to see because you don't even want to see who you really are. In that moment was born the cacophony of all the disruptions of your relationship with yourself, your fear, your shame, that critical voice that runs in the back of your head that is constantly critiquing the way you look or the way you behave or how good you are, smart you are, that voice was born in this moment. We lost shalom with ourselves. And instead of living in peace and harmony and flourishing in our relationship with ourselves, we now attack ourselves and tear ourselves down and and, and have to give birth to a false self and pretend and perform and fight. As you read through the chapter, you find that um, humanity also lost shalom with God. When God comes walking through the garden in the cool of the evening, which was his pattern during this season, he would come and spend time with those that were created in his image. Suddenly his presence, instead of being warming and life-giving, became threatening. No longer was his presence a gift. It became a terror because his holiness now became a threat instead of an invitation. His perfection, his beauty, the note that he rang out, that perfect note no longer vibrated beautifully with them. And instead of lighting them up with a joy in which they felt an invitation into the presence of the beauty and the perfection of God, they now felt it as a threat because they knew they were no longer in tune. We call that sin that sense of being less than God created us to be, that, that missing of the mark. And we know that we have it. And as a result, what did they do? They hid in the bushes instead of running to meet God. And when God called them out and asked them honest questions in which he was basically inviting them very simply to confess, they couldn't even be honest. They blame shifted and, 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 and suddenly all that pattern of, of, of not being able to take responsibility for our own behavior, not being willing to be accountable for our own choices, suddenly we have to find someone else to blame. Why? Because we can't deal with the fact that we're no longer what we were meant to be. We lose shalom with God. We also lose shalom with each other. When God is explaining to Eve the consequences of her choice, he says to her, your desire will now be for your husband and you will have pain in childbirth, which can mean a lot of things, but I think it means at least this, that the tightest form of community, the human family, is no longer a place of safety. It is now a place of threat. The marriage relationship in which one gives themselves freely to the other is now longer, no longer a place of flourishing and joy. It is now a place of competition and conflict because we no longer are in tune with community. We've lost shalom. And so we fight for limited resources. We fight for attention. We fight to advance our own agendas. We fight for for what we want, what we need. And instead of living to freely give ourselves to the other, instead of living to freely delight the other, we live for our own delight. We live for our own glory. So it brings conflict into the marriage relationship and it brings conflict into the relationship of raising our children. The original intent, obviously, was for raising of children to be an act of joy in which we freely gave ourselves to our children as they freely gave themselves to us. 
um, child rearing today has much more to do with warfare than um, that kind of joyful picture. Right? Anybody who's a parent knows, man, it's beautiful, right? I love my kids, but it's a battle. It's a battle because their hearts are set against us. Their hearts are set to be the center, right? And when we have to give it up in the middle of the night, we resent them. Why? Because our hearts are set on us being the center. We want our needs to come first. They want their needs to come first. Do you see what happened? We've lost shalom in the tightest form of community. And that spills out into every other form of community. We've lost shalom with our neighbors. We've lost shalom with others that are different from us, that we find threatening to us because they look different from us or a different color from us, speak a different language than us, have a different cultural background from us, and we see threats instead of invitations. And we move in conflict instead of community. We lose shalom with one another. We lost shalom with creation as well. When God was explaining to Adam, this is what's happened. This is, this is you know, the, 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 the ground used to yield willingly and joyfully to your hand because you were the steward of creation. Now it will only yield to you with thorns and thistles. Now there's going to be a disruption in your relationship with the rest of creation. Nature itself will rise up against you and you will tame it only through battle. It will be fruitful but it will be dangerous. See, when we explore Genesis chapter three and we look at how our rebellion against God has plunged all of creation into the consequences of that rebellion, the cacophony of self-glory, we see a profound structure for understanding every form of human suffering. All right? Why do we deal with with anxiety and mental illness? Why do we deal with a sense of wholeness, loss of shalom with ourselves? Why do people do evil things to other people? Why are we always in competition? Why do we always think the worst? Why are our thoughts of the worst often proved to be right? Loss of shalom with others. Why do, do natural disasters occur? Why do we see earthquakes and mudslides and tsunamis? Loss of shalom with the created order. These are the natural results of the loss of the harmony of creation. Is God strong enough to stop it? Yeah, he is. Why doesn't he? Because God has chosen to allow the story to play its course. He didn't reject us and judge us at the moment of our rebellion. He didn't shut the whole thing down and say, well, you guys messed this one up. Ah, the end of story. What he said was, instead, I'm going to let this play out. And as it plays out, I'm going to work in it and do something beautiful in the mess. Is he strong enough to stop it? Yes. But he's letting the story play itself out. He's letting the consequences of our rebellion have their natural result. But isn't he loving enough to intervene? He's powerful enough to stop it, but isn't he loving enough to intervene? If he's a good God, wouldn't he do something about it? Absolutely. He did. And he said he would. All right, take a look at verse 15 in chapter 3 there. In verse 15, we have a profound promise right there in the middle, right there in the middle of the chapter that explains the consequences of our rebellion against God. We have a promise of redemption from God. When he's speaking to the snake, when he's speaking to um, the enemy that ultimately tempted uh, Adam and Eve, he says this in verse 15. 
I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he, notice the singular there, that offspring of the woman, he, a very specific offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Right here, in the, in the moment as he's explaining the consequences of mankind's rebellion, he is promising that he's going to work through a very specific descendant. And that descendant is going to undo the rebellion. That descendant is going to reestablish shalom. He's going to step into the cacophony of our sin and bring a harmony as a result. And that ushers in a, an age of, of promise, Right? That starts the next act of the story, which is this age of promise in which God is reiterating his promise. Over the course of the Old Testament, as we read about the history of the Old Testament, God keeps promising a savior. God keeps promising a hero. God keeps promising an anointed Messiah, one who will come and and reestablish the kingdom of God, reestablish the sovereignty and, and, and rule of God. And once again, put the glory of God at the center of creation. And as he's promising it, he keeps narrowing the promise. And we see that through a series of covenants, right? Not only will he be a son of Eve, he'll be a son of Abraham. Not only will he be a son of Abraham, he'll be a son of David. Until the son of Eve, the son of Abraham, the son of David became the son of Mary and was actually born. A man born unlike any man before because he wasn't born in rebellion against God. He was born perfectly in tune with the glory of God, in harmony with God, walking in the shalom of God, fully submitted to the glory of God. We sum this up often by saying that he lived the life we should have lived. He walked in perfect submission to God. He worked in, walked in perfect harmony with those around him. He, he, he lived in self-giving love. He didn't compete for limiting resources. He didn't fight for his own glory. He operated from his acceptance in God, walking in shalom relationship with God to work for the good of others. He loved freely. And he was fully submitted. How, how could he do this? Because the Bible tells us he was God in the flesh. This is God actually entering the human story, his solution for our problem. Where we failed, he would succeed. And the only way he could do that was fully identifying with us. By God putting on flesh. <laughs> the God of the universe, the sovereign, beautiful, all-powerful God of the universe becoming a mud man, becoming part of his creation humbling himself, living the life we should have lived. And he did that so that he could die the death we deserve to die. Right? The God who started the story broke into our story to redeem that story. And the only way he could do that was by absorbing its pain. So he became human. And in becoming human, he so fully identified with us that he could take our place He could die our death. He took our sin. He took our guilt. He took our shame. He took our rebellion and he died the death we deserve to die. He became our great substitute. He is the hero of the story. Hmm. 
that became the holy lamb of God sacrificed on our behalf. When we look at human suffering, one of the questions we often ask is, where is God in our suffering? And the answer is right here. He is not absent. He is not distant. He is not emotionally disconnected. This is a crazy story. We have a God who entered our story so he could enter our suffering and redeem us from it. When we endure the loss of shalom, when we suffer at the hands of others or suffer at the hands of ourselves, God's not a stranger to that pain. He has been fully immersed in it in a way that we can't even imagine. An infinite God with infinite perfection being immersed in all the brokenness. There was no self-numbing taking place there. There was no disconnecting from any part of the pain. He absorbed it and experienced it all so that he could redeem it. He could call us out by paying the price of our sin. He drank that bitter cup to its final drop and then he died. And then the story tells us that he rose again. Jesus came back from the dead. Why? Because it wasn't his death. He was a perfect sacrifice. He didn't die because he deserved it. He didn't die because he had rebelled against God. He died because he was a willing sacrifice on our behalf. And once he had fully paid the price of our sin, he rose again. And when he rose again, you guys, it was to offer us forgiveness and new life in him. It was very personal. God died for you. But you. When Jesus lived his life, he lived it for you. And when he died his death, he died for you. And there's a personal invitation innate to that message, which is you can be forgiven and washed clean. Your guilt, your sin, your shame, every mistake, every rebellion, your account of debt toward God, toward yourself, and toward others is paid. If you believe in Jesus, you are cleansed, and you are covered with an alien righteousness, a righteousness not your own, the righteousness of God given to you through the the work of Christ. But it is not just profoundly personal. It is also profoundly cosmic. Because when Jesus did this, he didn't just do it to offer us a new start. He did it to offer humanity a new start. He rose to create a new humanity, no longer marked by rebellion against God, but introduced once again into shalom with God. He came to retune humanity to the glory of God so that we could, not just individually, but corporately, live to the glory of God in the outpouring of the goodness of God, once again experiencing shalom with God. And as we experience shalom with God, discovering what it means to have the shalom of God, like to actually be reconciled to ourselves, right? To allow the love of God to speak to the deepest insecurities of our soul, the success of God to speak to our deepest need for purpose and success, the comfort of God to speak to our deepest need for pleasure and joy. 
He's inviting us once again into the purpose for which we were created and not just alone, but together in a redeemed humanity where we are submitting ourselves once again to the glory of God by learning to walk in the message that the messenger gave us, this, this thing that we call the gospel, this good news of how God has broken into our story to be my savior, to take my place that I could stand with him. No longer standing in my record, but standing in his. Because he took my, my sin, I can stand in his righteousness as I simply believe in him. See, this is a profound story of love. I mean, that's really at the heart of it. It's a profound story of love in which God created mankind in his image that they might live in the overflow of his goodness. And when they rebelled against him saying, that's not going to stop me. We have a partnership with uh, an organization called Crew. They work on college campuses. And uh, we have, since we started uh, the church, had a pretty close relationship with them. And they created a a short video that I think actually illustrates this very point pretty powerfully. And so I'm going to ask our guys to go ahead and cue that up. You. Look at your eyes. Look at them. Speckled. Colorful. Each one unique. And I created every one of them. I created everything. The universe. And you. I gave you your personality. I made you pure. And every day, I give you life. I love you. But something happened. You cheated on me. You didn't trust me. You sinned. You cut yourself off from me. And although you're still alive, you were slowly dying. So you looked for other things. To fill the void. But nothing works. It just kills you faster. Separates us more and more. What are you searching for? destroyed, but to know me, so I became one of you, a fragile creation, I was tempted, but I never sinned, I came to save you, you have so many sins, and they have a cost, someone has to die, you or me. So I took on your sin and traded in my life for yours. And I died in your 
because I love you. Then, Follow me. As we look at the story arc of Scripture, the six acts of Scripture, the resurrection of Jesus marks the turning point in human history because it completely redefines not only how we relate to God, but how we relate to ourselves and each other. And it puts us in hope not only of, of our personal redemption, but the redemption of the entire created order which is why we look back to the first coming of Christ and we look forward to the second coming. We look back to his coming and his death, burial, and resurrection and that ignites within us a passionate desire for the restoration of all things. Because the end of the story is when he comes back, this time not to be our savior, but to be our king. This time to establish the kingdom of God on earth. And a restored humanity is able once again to operate in the shalom of God to the glory of God and the outpouring of love and generosity and gratitude. See, we live in the overlap of the ages. We're that little arrow right there. We live in the age that is passing, but we're also living in the age that is coming. We are in the already not yet tension of the work of Christ. It's already been won, but not yet realized. It is already finished, but not yet um, inaugurated and fully expressed. And in this age, we are messengers. We have been commissioned like Christ to carry a message of a loving God who is redeeming and restoring and inviting And when we understand our place in human history, when we understand our place in the story of God, it gives context to our lives. Helps us understand both the success and the failure, the pain and the purpose. Allows us to live for something so much more fulfilling and purposeful than self. So we still live in a world marked by the cacophony of sin and brokenness, the disharmony of the loss of shalom. But we also live with the reality of the work of Christ and are personally tasting as we believe in Christ and go more deeply into our belief in Christ. We're tasting more deeply of the restoration of shalom in our lives and we crave to see our community taste the same. We're a community on mission a community that are tasting deep of the love of God and then moving in the love of God to share that love with others. That's the context of Acts. If you want to understand what the the book of Acts is about, that's it right there. 
It is a community of people being transformed by the love of God and then being moved out in the love of God to share that love with others. And as we come to understand how God worked in the early church, we will come to understand how God is at work in us. And that what he did then is exactly what he's doing now in profound and powerful ways. I'm looking forward to unpacking this experience with you guys and looking at how the text impacts us today. And I hope you'll join us as we continue to dig into the book of Acts and uh, continue to study uh, and look at God's redemptive movement to see how it makes sense of the chaos of our lives. All right, as we wrap up, um, we're going to share communion in a moment. We do that every week, and we'll explain that in a moment. But before we share communion, uh, we need to take care of a little housekeeping, uh, which means we're going to be taking a special offering. If you're a guest with us this morning... um, feel free to watch, but we're not expecting you to participate. Uh, This is something we've been talking about for the last month, um, and our members and regular attenders understand what's going on here. Um, We have been saying over and over and over again that we are a young church at a historic crossroads of opportunity and challenge, right? The Lord has given us the ability to buy a building here in town. It's ours. I have the keys, but we need to renovate it before we can use it. And so we're just trying to figure out, okay, what are we able to do? right? What, how much of the opportunity are we going to be able to maximize at this point in time to carry the love of God into our community and maximize this resource uh, for that purpose? And so this morning, we'll be taking our special offering. Um, our, yeah. And so um, as the, uh, the special offering comes around, um, I'm going to ask you to, to drop in that piece of paper you received, members and regular attenders. And as I've explained previously, we're going to ask you to do one of three things. Uh, if you're part of the capital campaign already, just let us know that you're in to fulfilling your pledge. So we know um, that, that the money that's been pledged is, is committed, still committed a year and a half in to coming in so that we can move forward in confidence um, in, in um, using those resources to renovate our building. If um, you are able to increase your pledge, if God has moved your heart, if God has prospered you over the last year and a half and you're saying, I can actually increase my pledge and I would like to be involved at a greater degree, let us know that. If you've come to the church in the last year and a half, you weren't able to be part of the original uh, initial pledge, then we ask you to, uh, and you want to, then, then let us know, right? Let us know, and then let us know how much God has led you to give to the capital campaign over the, the final year and a half of our effort. Um, that information is critical, right? So that we can make wise decisions and we can be responsible stewards and maximize the opportunity in front of us, okay? Thank you guys for being part of this and thank you for... Um, loving the work of God in our church. Let me pray for us. We're going to take this special offering and then um, we will share communion. Father God, I thank you that you are a God on mission, that you didn't leave us in our brokenness, our lack of shalom, to pursue empty and endless pursuits in which we could never find genuine purpose and fulfillment and joy. But you... um, stepped into our brokenness. You humbled yourself. What an incredible thought. The God of the universe humbled himself. And taking on the form of a servant, acted in service to the point of death, even death on a cross. We thank you that in that death and resurrection, we find personal salvation, but we also find hope for the entire created order. So as we take this offering, Lord, It's in this context. We know that what we have is temporary, that this is a passing season, that there's something glorious and beautiful coming. And while we're here, we want to be faithful. While we're here, we want to maximize the gifts that you've given us for your glory. And so we take this offering.
and pray, Lord, that you would use it for your glory. Equip us to move forward um, on mission, um, to experience community deeply and to love our neighbors well. We thank you for Jesus, and we thank you that in the end, it's all yours. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. We'll take our offering, and then we'll share communion after that.